Well, in verse 2 of chapter 5, we read that our Lord Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, just think about that statement, that the Lord Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, opened his mouth. And what came out of his mouth was blessing. Indeed, he didn't have to say anything. Just the mere action of him opening his mouth to speak. It is all the blessing. Brothers and sisters, what a blessing it is. For the Lord Jesus to open his mouth. What a blessed state of blessedness it is. For not only him to open his mouth, but for us individually to be able to hear his voice the voice of the great shepherd indeed one of the blessed beatitudes could actually begin by saying and i say this with all reverence and respect for the word of god the one of the, you could consider the first beatitude of those who have come to know christ as their savior blessed is he who hears the voice of Christ. Who hears the voice of the shepherd. Even in our own day. Even today. Even now in this place. The Lord Jesus still opens his mouth to speak. The Lord Jesus still opens his mouth to pronounce blessing. He still does that. In every sermon that is preached from his word, the Lord Jesus opens his mouth. Because preaching is that. It's not preaching is not the, the, the words of men. True preaching that the Bible speaks of, it is the words of Christ. And through his servants up and down this land in pulpits, his mouth still opens and he still speaks. And how blessed it is for us to be able to hear his voice, the supreme prophet, the teacher of righteousness. But the reverse side is that how accursed, how damned are those who, having the opportunity to hear his voice, those who uh, up and down this land sit under the ministry of his word, coming into church buildings, who would rather pay attention to other things, be distracted by all manner of things, upon hearing his word preached, would rather apply it, not to themselves, but to their neighbors. rather than hearing him speak to them. I tell you with no doubt in my mind that hell will be filled up with people who will be brought to shame on that great day because of the many opportunities that they had to hear the voice of the shepherd, but the football game result or the thinking about something that, lay, uh, that happened to them throughout the, the previous week or will happen to them in the following week because they were so uh, enamored with things of this world, 
many, many will find themselves in that position and great will be their misery in hell. But again, our Lord opens his mouth to speak. So my urging to us, my pleading with you would be to listen to what the Lord Jesus says to us, to you today. To make an effort to listen to his voice with an opened heart, just like Lydia in the book of Acts. And to listen truly to what he says. Because it is glorious. The first word that come out, comes out of his mouth in verse 3. Blessed. Makarioi in Greek. And I'm not going to go into the... At least not today. Maybe in the coming weeks. There is a good amount of evidence that perhaps Jesus preached actually this sermon in Greek but that's a, a different story, or that's a different thing for us to consider. But makarioi, blessed, blessed, fortunate, happy, in the, in the fullest sense of the word, happy, is he. Blessed is he. What a wonderful way to start a sermon. Blessed is he. You remember how the Old Testament finished. In fact, you know what the last word in the Old Testament is? It's not too far away. If you still have your Bibles open, you just need to flick maybe four or five pages to Malachi chapter 4. And there in, in verse 5 and 6, you find the last words spoken in the Old Testament period. The last words spoken... Not by the last prophet, because the last prophet was, uh, of the Old Testament was John the Baptist, as we've seen. But by the, the last prophet before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And then silence 400 years of silence. And now the Lord Jesus, the, the promised Messiah, steps into the scene. And the first word that com comes out of his mouth is blessed. Blessed. The New Testament begins with blessedness, with a beatitude as it is often called. And it is with blessedness that Jesus starts his greatest sermon. The greatest sermon in the history of mankind, in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, the greatest preacher that ever walked this earth, the Word made flesh himself, comes and starts his sermon with the word blessed. His words are sweet to the ears of those who would hear him. His works are miraculous. His life a model for us, and his death a sacrifice on our behalf. As I said, said last week, just to remind ourselves, this is not a sermon that is spoken in an evangelistic way. 
the Lord Jesus is speaking to those who are his disciples. And in the Beatitudes, he's not expressing uh, a kind of uh, action-reward dynamic. He's expressing what is the experience, even though they may not feel it at times, what is the experience of all of those who are his, of those who are citizens of the kingdom that he has come to inaugurate, what is the internal experience of believers? The Lord Jesus is here talking to us more than just emotional experience, but he's talking about the state of those who are his. Jesus is talking about the situation that they are in. It is a condition of blessing, of joyfulness, of happiness. And this is what Jesus is announcing in the Beatitudes. That the disciples who are there in front of him, those who are truly his, they are blessed. For theirs is all of these blessings. The promises that were made long, long, long ago. 700 years before in some, or may have uh, even a couple of thousand years before, those promises that God would come and turn the mourning into laughter of the people, that, that God would come and, and, and he, would, he would turn the curse into blessing. Jesus is now saying, it has arrived. Your mourning will be turned into dancing so what does it mean to be blessed? Well, to, to understand the state of blessedness, I would argue we need to go back to the beginning, to our fathers in, in, in the Garden of Eden. They were the ones who were created in a state of blessedness. Human, humanity, creation began in a state of blessedness, of blessing. Adam was blessed in what the Lord had given him. The ability to walk with him. The ability to be fruitful in his presence. To multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over it. The Lord blessed Adam by giving him the ability to flourish and to fulfill his purpose in creation. God created him and gave him the blessed ability to perform his duties as a creature. And yet because of sin, we now find ourselves in a cursed state. That blessedness we once knew in the Garden of Eden as mankind has been destroyed. That ability to flourish, to multiply, has been taken away. But now the Lord Jesus comes and says, that blessing is back. In me, in my kingdom, that blessedness, that life, that abundant life, as he in another occasion says, I came that you, in me you would have life. And life abundant. That sense is not only restored, but is amplified by the, worthy, the infinite worthiness of the God-man. 
And today we won't consider the whole of the Beatitudes. I, I, I do think that we should take our time going through them. So we will consider just the first one, the introductory Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the, it's the all-encompassing one. In, in, the, in God's grace, in our Lord's grace, it, he begins the, 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 the Beatitudes with the, with the first one being the, like the first step of a ladder. It would have been very bad for us if the Lord started by saying, Blessed are the pure in heart. But here now he says, Blessed are the pure, poor in spirit. That seem, is seemingly much more attainable in some sense. So what, what is it that we learn from this first beatitude? Firstly, firstly, we learn that true blessedness is a great paradox in the eyes of the world. True blessedness is a great paradox. A paradox are two true statements that are seemingly uh, irreconcilable but yet they are not contradictory. That's what a paradox is in a very simple fashion. I'm sure the dictionary would have a much better definition of it. But it's two true statements that are seemingly reconcilable, but that nonetheless you cannot uh, contradict, contradict them. So true blessedness is a great paradox in the eyes of the world. What this first beatitude shows us is the emptiness of the values of the world. It exalts those things which the world despises. It exalts those things which the world rejects. And in, the, in another sense, although implied, implicit, it rejects those things which the, the world admires. The values of the kingdom of God, we are being told by our Lord Jesus, the king of kings, the king of this kingdom, that the values of the kingdom of God are inverted, are upside down from the values of the world. What does the world tell us? Blessed are those who can stand on their two feet. Blessed are those who are self-sufficient. Blessed are those who are arrogant and haughty and, and rich. Our Lord Jesus says, no, no, no. You got it all wrong. In my kingdom, blessed are those who are humble, who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their true state. The world thinks, doesn't it? You don't need to look very far and wide. I don't think I need to belabor this point. The world thinks that to be blessed is to be on the pinnacle. Is to be on the top of the ladder. To climb that, the, the heights. To be respected. To be influential and powerful. The world thinks it is to be on the peak of the mountain that is truly blessed. And our Lord Jesus says no. To be truly blessed is to be on the valley, is to be down low. Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, he said that the, the blessedness does not lie in, in things that are external. 
The world looks and he sees external circumstances and says those things are the marks of true blessedness. Those things are the marks of what it means to be blessed. You find that on Instagram so often. Hashtag blessed. They say, our Lord Jesus says, no, it's not there outside. True blessedness lies on the inside. Jesus is not referring here, although I understand why so many think this, especially when you come to the book of Luke, to the gospel of Luke, that records for us this, uh, uh, this sermon as well. Luke doesn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit, or records it just as blessed are the poor. And so often uh, Luke uh, emphasizes the social, uh, social economical side of the ministry of our Lord Jesus. But the, but the intent of, the Lord, of our Lord was not to, to say that blessed are those who are poor in material terms. He's saying those that are poor in spiritual terms. It's talking about spiritual poverty. It is about those who come to know themselves as spiritually poor those who come to understand that they, or come to have this sense of longing for the filling or the fulfillment of their poorness. And yes, it is true. Because of the fall of our forefathers, because of the fall of Adam and Eve, we are all spiritually poor. We are all spiritually bankrupt there is nothing that we have we are worse than beggars the, the uh, our state is one of utter total spiritual bankruptcy person is bankrupt, lost everything, doesn't have anything. Uh, his debts have uh, surpassed his credit. Uh, his, his debts have surpassed his, uh, his fi financial ability. So he technically, even though he might have something in, in, to his name, uh, because of his portfolio's uh, value being lower than what he owes, he's bankrupt. And there's... In finance world, there's all those technical terms for people who are uh, technically uh, bankrupt but are not experiencing it just yet. And I think there is something there about the spiritual state of man. We are all technically bankrupt. We're all spiritually dead. They're in paradise. That's where it happened. They're in, not in paradise, they're in the Garden of Eden. That's where, where it happened. We accrue a debt that is impossible to repay. Because there in paradise we had everything. There was a spiritual richness, a spiritual blessedness. We had knowledge of God. We had fellowship with the divine. We had true righteousness and holiness. And yet because of the sin, the sin of Adam and Eve, we lost it all. There we had true life. Then man was spiritually rich. 
But now all of it was lost. Worse than the worst of financial crashes in, a, in our day. People talk about the financial crash of 1930s, where a lot of people lost their, their possessions. Where, or the 2008 uh, prime real estate crisis, where a lot of people, again, lost a lot of their riches. But that's, that's child's play in spiritual terms in comparison to what was lost in Eden. But though we are all spiritually poor, by nature, we don't recognize it. Do you recognize yourself as being spiritually poor? By nature, we are blind to it. By nature, we, we're like that church in Revelation. You say, I'm rich. The Lord Jesus says to them, you say, I'm rich, I have become wealthy, and I have, I have need for nothing. Go out on the streets and ask anyone, and what they'll say is, I have no need for God. I have all that I need here and now. Although the reality is they are, they are bankrupt, they have nothing to their name, they are technically in the red, or they're, they're, they're well and good in the red, and they have no perspective of earning enough to pay that debt, they say that all is fine. All is okay. The Lord Jesus says, no, no, no. You are wretched. You are miserable. You are naked. You are poor. You are blind. That's what the Lord Jesus means by those who are poor in spirit. It is about people who have been made aware of their spiritual poverty. Even though we are all spiritually poor, all mankind, blessed are those, uh, are the poor in spirit, those that come to understand their spiritual poverty. Those that come to understand that they have nothing. That they are truly beggars. At the end of this service, we'll come to the Lord's table. And, and that's the, the litmus test of coming to the table. Have you recognized yourself to be as one who has nothing to his name? Because those who are a part of the kingdom are those who have recognized their poverty. And have realized that their only hope is the riches of another, is the handout that Christ is able to give. And that demands self-examination. So you might ask, how do we come to know that? How do I come to know that I am indeed spiritually poor? How do I experience the poorness in spirit? Well, the Lord does that through his word. In his spirit, applying that word in our hearts. When, our, when you read the word of God and the spirit of God is applying that word, you gradually start to see your poverty being uncovered. That's when you start seeing that all that I thought I had, just like the Apostle Paul, all those things that I thought were in my de debit 
uh, credit category. I'm probably confusing categories here. All those things that I thought I had in my bank account, there actually was a minus in front of it. It was a, it was a, a, a debt category. It was, they were not credits. That's when the word of God starts applying it. Those things that you, thought are vir- that you think are virtues in your life, that garner you some kind of favor with God, that work uh, on your behalf, to, to say that this is something I have. It's rubbish. Dunghill. It's dung. The Apostle Paul says. And how do we experience that? Well, I think most of us who are believers here, in some way, shape, or form, have experienced it in the same way. Maybe different uh, in, in, in another, in some fashion, but it's, at the core of it, it's the same way. We sit, we hear while we're reading the Word of God, we're listening to a sermon, uh, and, and we start to realize all those things that enamor me about this world, all those things that, that, that are, seemed so pleasing in my sight have all of a sudden become smaller and smaller. All those things that I thought were rich uh, and pure and good and, and, and blessings, you start realizing they're just pulling me further down. You realize that the world has nothing to give, nothing to offer. There is a sense of insatisfaction with everything that the world has to offer. And then it's when you have that sense of insatisfaction with everything that the world has to offer, that you come to Christ, the only one who can satisfy that God-shaped hole or gap in your heart. Have you been one of those? Have you ever sat in church like that? The crying. Nothing in my hands I bring. Why? Why was the hymn writer able to say that? Because he understood there is nothing I can have in my hands. What is it that I will bring in my hands that that will give me a, a standing or will garner me favor with God? Nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. I have no clothes of my own. Helpless, I have no strength of my own. Come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. They are not just beautiful words. They are in that, but they are more than just beautiful words written by someone who had a poetic proclivity. Those are the words of someone who truly felt this, their spiritual poverty. No clothes, no riches, no possessions, no strength. I'm foul unless I'm washed by the Savior. And it's when you start looking at the things of this world that so easily, that enchanted you, and you realize that in the light of eternity, they they are wholly, completely unsatisfactory. They have nothing. It's only then that you come to the Savior like this, that you will receive not only a hundredfold, but you will receive 
far above and beyond what you can think or ask. These are not my words. These are not the words of some prosperity, health and wealth gospel preacher. These are the words of God himself. Far above what you can think or ask. You see, this is the second thing that this first beatitude reveals to us. Is that true blessedness is not in external things. It's a paradox to the world. But but it's when you realize it's not on external things. But it's on internal realities. Again, I I, I point back to, to to that lovely quaint saying of Thomas Watson. Blessedness does not lie in externals. It is internals. Internal realities. Jesus could have said, couldn't he? He could have said, blessed are the rich. But blessedness is not centered on externals. Riches do not satisfy. Not all the gold of this earth. Not all the riches of of this world. Not all the money of... Jeff Bezos, Elon, Elon Musk, the hundred of them put together could fill the emptiness of your soul. True blessedness is centered not on external things, but in a, not even in blessings, gifts by God. True blessedness, what we are being told here, lies in a correct understanding of who God is and who who we are. It's an enjoyment of intimacy with the one that blesses. It's when you realize that, that you truly come to see yourself as spiritually poor. It's when you realize that earthly goods in your hand distract you from the emptiness of your heart. Earthly goods in our hands sometimes are the worst curse that damns our soul because it takes away from the reality. It it shifts our attention from the emptiness of our heart. The things that empty life are commonly those that promise to fill it. It's not even that they just distract. They actually take away from it. It's the story of that uh, farmer who had uh, a particularly good crop. And what he did, he tore down the barns and he built them up bigger and higher. And he thought, now I'm going to be able to enjoy myself. And in fact, he was a wretched, damned man. And Jesus calls him mad, a fool, because of that. The poor in spirit are those that, like Peter, when he was out catching fish, and Jesus comes to him, he says, Oh Lord, go away from me, I'm a, for I'm a sinner. The poor in spirit are those like the prodigal son coming to the father and saying, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I've sinned. I have nothing. The poor in spirit are those who are simple, They are those who are little ones. They are those who have everything that is not good and lack everything 
necessary to exist before a holy and righteous God. That's what the poor in spirit are. But why are they blessed? Well, because they come to understand the most important thing. They come to understand those that have come to understand their spiritual poverty. They come to understand that they are beggars. They are needy. And they come to the one who can fill that gap. They are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are blessed because they are those who have been given that which they lacked out of grace and mercy. And note that that's my third and last point. That true blessedness is not only a promise for, it's not just, or is more than just a promise for the future. It is a reality that is enjoyed in the present. Jesus did not say, blessed will be the poor in spirit. For at some point in the future when I return, I will give them all of this. No, it is blessed here and now because you have come to have and enjoy fellowship with him who can give you what you lack. That's why it does not mean financial uh, poverty. The Roman Catholics make a mess out of this verse. Because of this, uh, you probably heard the name Francis of Assisi. Francis Assisi, uh, uh, he, he was the one that put forward, it was already present in, uh, in Roman Catholic theology or practice uh, for many, many, many centuries. But Francis of Assisi was the one that, that really pushed this strongly. Uh, that the that, that spiritual uh, that poverty uh, is the way to God, Fig, uh, not spiritual but financial poverty. So the best thing you can do if you have, want to have a relationship with God uh, is right now is to to uh, empty yourself of any riches, and then perhaps almost like the, the 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 Islamic the Muslims. Inshallah, you you'll have a relationship with God in the future. But that's not what scripture says. It says that it's those who are spiritually poor. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that there is no merit or advantage in poverty. Poverty is no guarantee of spiritual life. Blessed poverty is that blessed poverty of the spirit. But let me just say this. It's blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not blessed are those who are spiritually poor. What am I saying here? This is not an excuse for us to be spiritually deficient, to be poor in holiness, to be poor in faith and love. That is a tragedy. That is not a blessed state. It is blessed are those who come to understand their need for Christ. The, the, the blessed are those who come to understand that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. It's blessed are those who come to have a correct understanding of their situation before God. It is not as well blessed, this blessedness is not as well a, 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 
a flattened self-esteem. It's true humility, not low self-esteem. That's, that's evil. Being poor in spirit or being humble in spirit is having the right, the right opinion about oneself. Is saying, I am worthless. I am deserving of hell. And that's why this is so great. That the Lord Jesus puts this blessed uh, statement of those blessed are the poor in spirit at the beginning. It's the first rung of the ladder. Of the ladder. As I said this morning, J.C. Rowell said that humility is the first letter of the Christian alphabet. And here we see that. It's the first step. It's that blessed humility that perceives ourselves as lacking any virtue, any richness. The word for, for poor here, just say a little bit Blessed are the poor in spirit. And there are two words in the Greek. I know sometimes when the, the preacher gets technical with the Greek, can be quite daft. But there are two words in Greek that, that are translated in our Bibles as poor. One of them is the word penes. And that's uh, someone who is of a lower class, but yet is still able to work. It's someone who is... Uh, doesn't have enough to spare, but it's someone who can provide for himself, can work. He does not possess superfluous things, but yet he does have the basics. He's poor, but nowadays in our, in our class system, or in the way that we classify people, you'd say it's someone who is a working class, uh, on, the lower, on the low side of being working class. But the second word in Greek that gets translated as poor, it's much more emphatic and much more uh, absolute. It's the word patokos. It describes absolute, total poverty, poverty. Someone who has sunk into utter misery. It's someone who is a beggar, who lives out of the charity of others it's someone who has absolutely nothing and that's the word that gets used here it's the word that is used for Lazarus in Luke 16 when Jesus is telling the parable of the rich man and, the, and Lazarus it's the word that is used for Lazarus he is a petokos and this is what our Lord Jesus says blessed are the petokos in spirit Because only those who are tokos in spirit, only those that are poor in spirit, will come to put their whole trust in God. That's the meaning of this beatitude. And if you don't understand your poorness of spirit, I question if you have ever under, uh, been face to face with God. If you ever have come into the presence of God, not, not in some kind of out-of-body experience, but if you ever come to understand God and see God in His holiness, because the one consistent reaction uh, across Scripture of those who have come to see themselves in the presence of God 
is to bemoan themselves, to, 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 to see themselves as those who have been undone, of those who, are, who have been in the presence of the Holy One, as those who are spiritually poor and have no standing to be in the presence of a holy and just God. Only the poor in spirit can enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the poor in spirit can come to cross the gate of heaven because they bring nothing. Those who possess no importance in their own eyes. Charles Spurgeon said, are those in all the universe who possess royal blood. In a few moments, we will come to the Lord's table. And the question for all of us, that is the question that we need to ask ourselves, is are we those that have seen ourselves as spiritually poor? The question we ask ourselves is, am I walking with him? Am I relying upon his grace? Am I poor in spirit? Or do I still think that I can and am able to perform for myself those things? Do I still have a little uh, a checkbook in uh, a hidden bank account? on which I trust, that I'm relying upon. The question before us, it's not just the, of coming to the Lord's table, it's the question of eternity. There are only two ways of living in this world. You're either in bliss now and forever, or you're in a disastrous road that goes to hell. You're either blessed or you're damned. The Lord Jesus said this, didn't he? Woe to you, to rich, to the rich, because you have received your consolation. Woe to the rich. Where do you belong? I say to you, this day, he is still near. He is still to be found. You can still come to him and beg, O Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. You can beg for it. And I'll tell you, you don't need to beg that much. Because those who come to him, you will in no way cast out. And here, in this love feast that we will have a chance to experience well in this love feast that we'll uh, come and, and in obedience to God's word we have a chance of experience a little bit a small fraction of that blessedness that we, is already ours in part but not yet in full but in heaven it will be complete we have a, a, a chance to have a foretaste of heaven, Some, to experience something of that blessedness, of that salvation, of those treasures that are ours already in the kingdom of heaven. Here is partly, but there will be complete. For soon the kingdom of heaven will be revealed on that new earth. 
We're already part of it. It's not yet revealed, but there is already a kingdom. And there is the king sitting on the throne. But there, there will be more, no more iniquity. There, everything will become true. And there, we will experience that which is ours, the kingdom of heaven. And how deeply, brothers and sisters, how deeply will those who, who understand their poorness of spirit bow down when they stand mid yonder shining throng and on fair Canaan's coast their Savior see, they'll add their chorus to that swelling song, He loved me and gave himself.